0: I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Sorab Amari. Sorab is the op-ed editor of the New York Post, a columnist for First Things, and a contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. Previously, he served as a columnist and editor with the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages in New York and London, and as senior writer at Commentary. His writing has also appeared in many other prominent outlets. He is the author of a beautiful spiritual memoir detailing his conversion titled From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. His new book and the topic of our conversation today is The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Sorab Amari, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Now, I thought we'd begin with the second part of that subtitle, An Age of of chaos, and here's our entry point for this age of chaos. The book opens with a nightmare, your nightmare. And this nightmare begins with your son, Maximilian, returning from college, preparing to start a good job at a good company where he'll make good money. He joins you and your wife, his mother, for dinner joined by his friends. Talented, likable, promising, destined for success, and by their lights and the standards of society, happiness. This is an odd way for a bad dream to begin.
1: Yes, um, and and some would say the fact that I consider it a bad bad dream is maybe a sign of decadence on my part that I should be happy that in my vision of a, of a bad future, my son comes home and I imagine him having graduated from a, uh, an elite university because chances are, I mean, you know, all things being the same, he'll probably inherit his parents' upper-middle-class status. He'll go to a good school. He'll find a job at a publishing house or hedge fund or whatever he wants to go into. Um, But my nightmare is that he's going to basically become a man of of no moral purpose. Um, He's um, kept his, quote-unquote, options open all his life, which is one of my least favorite phrases in the English language. And what that's meant is that in fact, he hasn't exercised his freedom. Um, as I write also in the introduction, my son is named after St. Maximilian Kolbe, the great uh, Polish uh, saint and um, uh, martyr who, who famously laid down his life for a stranger at Auschwitz in 1941. And to me, um, St. Maximilian Kolbe's sacrifice represents a kind of perfect image of, of, of freedom. Mm. Freedom precisely in a situation in which you know your options Your choices are pretty narrow so talk of cop keeping your options open makes no sense at at a death camp nevertheless in that context he exemplified or provided us with an icon of of perfect christian freedom obviously i don't want my son god forbid to be in a situation where he has to make choices like that but um, the commanding moral heights that saint mexican cold freedom represented um, that made possible the the sacrifice of the cold bay and his act of freedom seems so distant compared to that nightmare for my son, where he's just sort of, uh, seeking to get ahead in life, seeking to, uh, gratify his own uh, baser desires and a society that tells him that's all freedom means really. Yeah. So the whole book is my attempt to attempt to, um, to tether my son to something more than maybe I can give him, but, uh, Something that's exemplified by Saint Maximilian Kolbe's uh, sacrifice, but also the the moral, intellectual, spiritual formation that made possible and makes legible that act of sacrifice. The chaos in the subtitle um, is is a complicated question. We can get into it. Um, I would argue that we're actually we live in an age when we're we're actually severely disciplined in various ways, Hmm. Um, but the discipline orders us to disorder, if I may put it that way. Uh, but that's a separate question. That in in a, in a, in quotidian terms, the chaos just means a life of 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 no purpose, with no permanent things, uh, with no anchors, really, no moral anchors, no um, sense of what it really means to be happy, what it means to be really fulfilled.
0: Sure, and and you propose a potential anchor, a potential way to make sure that this nightmare does not become reality. And this is the first part of the subtitle, The Wisdom of Tradition. What is this tradition? You draw from a variety of thinkers in this book, a rabbi, a 20th century radical feminist, a Russian dissident, a pagan Stoic, Catholic saints. Do these people or their ideas belong to a specific tradition or is this an exploration in defense of the wisdom of tradition simply?
1: It's a very good question, but it's also one that I'm, um, that uh, various interviewers have posed to me. And um, so it's interesting that a lot of people pick up on that. Um, uh, So as a Catholic, I I obviously uh, uh, revere something called tradition with a capital T, Mm -hmm. which is the church's tradition. It's one source of authority alongside sacred scripture, alongside the living, you know, papal magisterium. And that capital T tradition is reflected in the unbroken thread, but uh, there are also small T traditions, plural, um, that reflect the natural wisdom uh, sprinkled among the peoples, as it were, um, who being endowed by with reason are capable of um, uh, reaching a lot of important conclusions without the benefit of the capital T tradition, if you will. Um, And, Although the figures represented in the book, as you pointed out, um, are quite diverse, or disparate, you might say, um, I argue and I think readers will see that there is a there is a thread that unifies them all together. Um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, St. Augustine, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, Andrew Dorkin even. Um, in, all, in the book, as I draw on these thinkers, um, each of them stands for somehow the same idea, although in different dimensions of life. And that idea is this, that, um, that uh, we find true happiness in accepting various limits, restrictions, uh, forms of authoritative guidance that are associated with pre-modern traditions. And that the loss of those traditions paradoxically leaves us less free. So for example, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel is kind of the obvious case and easiest to discuss. Um, I use him for a chapter in the book Titled um, "Why Would God Want You to Take a Day Off?" and of mm-hmm. course it's a defense of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, obviously, on surface, especially to a lot of modern people, looks like a uh, an imposition on our lives. You what? There's one day of the week when you when you can't do what you want. You can't shop. You can't work. Uh, what's up with that? Um, <clears throat> but as we see in in as as a, as the idea works out in the chapter, in fact, Sabbath restrictions are a source of inner liberty, as Rabbi Heschel said that. Um, it's it's okay to spend you know six days a week seeking after material goods and and economic well-being and prosperity, um, but those goods overwhelm the whole of man and woman mm. when they when there's not a seventh day during which you make peace with your neighbor economically speaking you don't uh, uh, pursue the same kind of acquisitiveness that defines the rest of your defines the rest of your life. And the loss of the Sabbath tradition in in the American tradition, which Sabbatarianism, the idea that the law should hallow one day a week uh, as a day of rest and and worship, the loss of that Sabbatarian tradition, although it was sold to us as liberation in practice, it's just meant that we're more harried, especially for working class people, it means they get to spend less time with with family, with relatives, with uh, children. Um, And so we see this same paradox which my friend Patrick Deneen also documents in his book, uh, uh, kind of theorizes right. that the loss of traditional limits uh, paradoxically leave us less free. Yeah. Um, I should point out just just for readers or viewers of this podcast who who, who don't know about the format of the book. Sure. Be- yeah. Because I'm not a I'm not a theologian. I'm not a philosopher. I'm, I'm a journalist and a storyteller. I wanted to guide my son and hopefully the reader to this to this wisdom. Um, but instead of me sort of banging on about it in my own voice, um, I decided to pose 12 questions, uh, 12 questions that one way or another poke holes in some of our modern certainties, or they're unasked questions that our civilization says, you know, science or technology have supplanted the need to even ask these questions or right. even um, obviated the need to ask these questions. Um, and in fact, they're still pertinent to our lives is my point. And I explore each through the life of one great thinker. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think in a way I kind of created my own genre and it's been, uh, it's been fun to do that. But it also means that the book doesn't hit you thick with philosophy You're, because each chapter is biographical. You're introduced to the life of one person, their historical, his or her historical context. And then um, the ideas are worked out through the drama of that person's life with a beginning, middle and end. So there's a, there's a narr- strong narrativistic element to each chapter.
0: Yeah, it's also a very humble way uh, to write the book, which was striking to me and effective, I think, in drawing the reader into it. If, if you if a reader were to open the table of, of contents and just see a series of 12 statements, they might say, I'm familiar with Sor Abomari. He's just telling me what he thinks. But this is different. It draws you in. I, it's almost like an invitation to your son to Max and to any reader to join you in this conversation and explore these things. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to explore a few of those questions uh, with you before I pose a few questions of my own to you. And I'd like to start with the sixth question. What you say is, quote, perhaps the biggest question that diverts modernity from the great stream of traditional thought, end quote. Does God need politics? Tell us about this question and why it's so important.
1: So just to first uh, rule something out, because I know... uh, if there are professional theologians watching us, they would say God doesn't need anything, <laughs> and I know, and I say that in the chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, he doesn't need anything. But I argue that um, the God of the Bible seeks to transfigure everything about us, and that includes the incarnational God of the Bible seeks to transfigure everything about us, including our our cities or our yeah. political lives. And um, obviously the uh, the Where that diverts with modernity is is, uh, uh, at least one very prominent uh, modern strand of thought says that um, questions about the ultimate meaning of life, or the highest goods of human life, um, don't belong in the sphere of politics. That politics is about mostly matters of sort of secular concern how much taxes we pay, how should we organize our health systems, or when should we wage war? And um, people with diverse accounts of the highest good of life can hash those out uh, privately, but that the public sphere ultimately should be kind of neutral ground between these rival accounts of the highest good. Um, And through the chapter, which was explored through the life of St. Augustine, I argue that it's impossible actually to to neatly separate those that um, one way or another, uh, what rulers or political communities believe is the highest end of human life will impact their secular temporal decisions that they make. Um, So not only is that neutrality impossible, but um, uh, the illusion of neutrality is is, um, somehow harmful as well. Hmm. And um, so I give a kind of, uh, you know, uh, without saying so in the chapter explicitly, I, I, I give a case for um, frankly, what people today call integralism. Um, I use the phrase political Catholicism or political Christianity more, that, um, that the Christian faith um, has public political dimensions, uh, or should say the Catholic faith. I, I don't know about that. I don't think it's true of other denominations, but the Catholic faith has public political dimensions and makes demands on the public square um, um, that uh, can't easily sort of be relegated to a private sphere.
0: Mm -hmm. Could the um, title of that chapter, does God need politics? Could the question almost be reframed and say, uh, does politics need God? And the answer is yes. Politics will
1: always have a God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to get at, um, and and I get to it in the chapter. I wanted to get at the idea that, um, that uh, a God who is an incarnate God who makes Himself present in the history, first of all, of His, um, uh, his chosen people Israel, and then in a kind of universal way uh, through the through the incarnation and the, and the cross, can't then be, um, be be relegated to a private sphere. Mm-hmm. Because, he, but in 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 entering our city, He has. Essentially, sig- signaled that he wants to transfigure our cities. And so, if there's an incarnational God, then then um, that will have uh, public political dimensions because we're not just, um, as human beings, we're not just private individuals. We also have these kind of political communities and, that are definitive of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I do I, I wanted not not just to say that God that politics needs God because that still could. That could, you could still have an idea. Well, you know, yes, people should bring their values to, to political discussion, but it could be a it could be a thin or light claim. Or the idea that a, a an incarnate an incarnate God would make public demands of us. Um, and if if, if if he exists and if he's revealed himself uh, in history in the way he has, then then those demands cannot be sidestepped. Uh, the question sets up it, – it, it's a more provocative question, and it sets up a, a thicker, stronger answer, I'd suggest.
0: Sure. But, yeah, that's yeah. well taken. Um, you pose the question, what is freedom for? And the modern reader sees this, and perhaps especially the mod- modern American reader sees this and responds, finally, an easy question. Freedom is for whatever I choose, to be who I want, worship how I want, read what I want, live where I want, love how I want. That's the point of freedom. And yet you write, and you've already said this, that in giving his life, Saint Maximilian Colby, this man imprisoned and murdered in Auschwitz, this man, quote, climbed the very summit of human freedom, end quote. So what is true
1: freedom? Um, So that chapter is, uh, we should note the the central character there is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who, great Russian dissident, obviously, and... um, it's focused on his famous Harvard speech, famous or infamous, depending on, on where you fall in the question. Um, it, it, as you know, obviously he obviously he detested Soviet communism and had ex- right. he, uh, escaped the gulag, had served time in the gulag nearly a decade. But he comes to the West and he's asked to give a commencement address at Harvard. And everyone expects him to sing from a certain song sheet. In fact, as he wrote to his own diary, which had only been recently published in English, you know, he was uh, expected to sing the, the immigrants' ode to the great Atlantic liberty, fortress of liberty, as he put it. Um, but in fact, he used most of the speech to criticize the Western concept of freedom. Right. Um, and the way he put it was that freedom is only really freedom if it's freedom for the good, hmm. and that there's a distinction to be made for freedom for evil for, versus freedom for good. Um, maybe someone from the American founding generation would, use the language of liberty versus license. Um, In the pre-modern traditions as a whole, stand for the idea that that true freedom is freedom um, to do what you ought to do, to to do your duties, uh, and and, um, to fulfill your your telos, your purpose as a human being, as a rational animal, um, both your natural ends and and your supernatural ends. and yeah, I mean, that's in conflict with an idea of freedom as merely the ability to choose from the widest range of contraries. You know, I can, I can wear blue shoes, I can wear purple shoes, I can love a, I can love a man, I can love a woman, I can, uh, I can change my sex if I wanted to, or I can change my gender. Um, it, it's more than that. Yeah. Uh, and, and Solzhenitsyn would argue that the, the modern account of freedom, the one that just uh, cease. Uh, that the, the hallows individual choice or maximizing individual autonomy has actually crowded out the true freedom, which is the freedom to do what you ought to yeah. do.
0: One of the questions in this book, one of the 12 questions, and I, I imagine 16-year-old Maximilian reading this with a smirk, how must you serve your parents? And you, Of explore- course I would write that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't the first question. Is that- <laughs> you explore that question in the book, and it's an important one. Um, and I encourage people to visit, uh, to, to read the book and, and hear you explain it, but I'd like to flip it actually in our conversation, because it's inverse is obviously a driving factor in your decision to write this book. What does a parent owe to his child?
1: In a word, posterity. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, a, um, uh, uh, an anxiety, anxiety that impelled me to, to write the book is the, is the anxiety of posterity of, um. How am I um, forming my son? Um, And posterity and formation, parental formation, obviously behind them lies a much more elemental force, which is love. Hmm. So parents owe their children love. And the basis of Confucian filiality, because that chapter is explored through who else, if you're going to talk about filial piety than Confucius, um, the basis of it is that um, your parents were, uh, the people who unconditionally loved you, uh, in your, in your most vulnerable stage in life when you can't care for yourself. And in that way, they nurtured your moral imagination in a way that then, uh, in a sound political order and a sound familial and then political order then ripples out to your wider community and ultimately to a, an entire political community. Um, and that's why filiality is an important, uh, social value. Yeah. Um, but as you say, it's, it depends on it depends on love of parent and child, which yeah. isn't actually always present. And yet, nevertheless, filiality norms across civils, including you know, the mosaic filiality norm, doesn't make uh, an exception for parents who didn't love, which makes mm-hmm. them very challenging. And it, it, I think um, I'd argue that that's the chapter that a lot of readers will got, um, kind of wrestle with the most and maybe disagree with the most. Certainly my editor, and, uh, you know, uh, including the copy editor of the book was like, wait, this is how? How can you love bad parents? Huh. And it's a very difficult, it's a difficult question to answer because yeah. it's awkward because, I mean, I benefited from relatively good parents. I think you did as well. But there are people who have terrible parents. And yet, you know, the commandment to honor your mother and father, uh, the mosaic one, which is also in kind of Confucian account, uh, doesn't make exceptions for or bad parents. like You can not honor them. It's very difficult.
0: Yeah, it it is very difficult. And especially, and this will lead me into this next question, in this sort of work of ideas, right? In many ways, this idea of unconditional love for your parents who loved you unconditionally is one of the most difficult questions to wrap your mind around, to intellectually grasp. Mm -hmm. Now, as you said, you interact with these thinkers throughout the book, philosophers, public intellectual, authors, religious leaders, and explore the wisdom that tradition bears. But there seems to be another aspect of this book, another thread, to borrow a metaphor, uh, throughout this book that's sometimes more recognizable than at other times. And that's emotion, pathos, not logos. Mm-hmm. I think of your account of Newman floored by the smoky awe and mystery of the Catholic mass. So before his intellectual conversion, there's an emotional one. So what is the role of emotion, of passion in binding us to tradition?
1: Boy, that's a tough question because I don't actually explicitly um, address it in the book. So I'd have to draw from, you know, in a way, uh, impromptu (laughs) answer Um, because it's there, but I didn't uh, theorize it explicitly. Um, But I mean, I would argue this that um, the inherited obligations and bonds um, that the book extols throughout um, are impossible without emotion are impossible Mm -hmm. without um, uh, not just not just i think when you say emotion people think um sentimentality or something but a sense that um uh, you know if tradition is ordered continuity i'm going back to logos because it's it's maybe it's a more comfortable place, but if tradition is ordered continuity and it's these things that have been handed down to you and you're somehow called to hand on to the next generation, um, what is the what is the attraction of that at, at the level of emotions? I would argue that tradition as a whole, the, the emotion I associate with them is comfort and safety actually, mm. um, that, um, if I know where I've come from or what my true inheritance is, then I can, then I can face the future with a kind of, uh, fearlessness with a kind of, I can launch into the future because I know where I'm coming from. And, um, I have this sense of guardrails or handrails that, that lead up to my present position and then into the, into the future that might be unknown or dangerous or scary. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll stop there. I think I think that's a, that's ultimately, but you know, that doesn't address your point about Newman, and that's it's a it's a true thing, and and it's also I think present in the chapter about Victor and Edith Turner, who were this pair of yeah. British, anthropo- was a para- British ant- ant- anthropologists, husband and wife, um, both uh, secular, card carrying Communist Party members, but they um, go to Africa and um, to study tribal ritual. And they find themselves um, in touch with, as Victor Turner put it, with this sense of uh, of of a, of a deeper, being more deeply in touch with the human condition, tinged with transcendence, as yeah. he put it. That he found in African ritual, and then again he found it in the Catholic Mass, and it prompted him ultimately to convert to Catholicism. Yeah. Him, him, and Edie Turner. Um, there. So, so, what does that tell us? It it tells us ultimately that there are sources of knowledge and truth, traditional sources of knowledge and truth that can't be reduced to scientific facts, can't be reduced to observe, merely sort of observable phenomena that you can then express in mathematical language. But there are these kind of mysterious dimensions of tradition that um, enrich our lives, that people who adhere to them Know and can can't always articulate, but they 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 enjoy it. Gives their gives their life meaning, a sense a sense of mystery, um, and um, without which you're less than fully human. You're you're you're. Um, it's as though you don't. Uh, your language is limited if you don't have them because you you, you don't uh, you can't commune with all of what it means to be human, which absolutely has this kind of emotional, uh, transcendent dimension that can't, that can't be put into words easily, that can't be subject to, to logic and, and uh, mathematical rules or scientific inquiry.
0: Yeah. This is just sort of a personal aside, but in reading that chapter on the Turners, I was reminded, and then again, when I came to the passage on Newman, I was reminded of Michael Brendan Dougherty's book, my Father Left Me Ireland.
1: I love that book.
0: It's a. I think it came out about the same time as From Fire by Water. Yep. I, I could be wrong about that. And yeah, th- those two books were, were. It, it was a good pairing to read them together. But Michael Brendan Dowdy shares this experience of, um, he's with other young men and women, and they're in a pub, if I remember. And some people were trying to get them to sing old Irish songs. Mm. And they had this hard shell of cynicism that wouldn't let them do it. Um and I think of, and of him, my,
1: especially as an American Gen Xer. Ex-
0: exactly. He's it's, resisting
1: it the most. I love that passage. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, and so it, it, it reading the account from the Newman's and the Turner's that you share this hard shell of cynicism makes it so difficult to get yeah. in touch with that emotional, passionate side of, of tradition.
1: There's um, a wonderful passage in that. We're, we're, now we're talking about a different book, but um, <laughs> just to, as a, as a, I don't know if Michael will hear this, but i praise praised that book to no end and, and, reviews and elsewhere but there's a part where oh it's very touching because his parents quite never quite um settled together so his uh you know his father ultimately doesn't doesn't end up living with his mother and him and but they're in a bar in in this where somewhere in Ireland and and the, the two parents are smoking and they're drinking beer and young Michael is watching them and he says, "I wish the smoke from your cigarette, meaning the dad's cigarette, would lasso her, meaning his mom, so that they would stay together. It's very touch I mean yeah. and as what a testament to his gifts as a writer, yeah."
0: Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Returning to your book, uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about
1: Michael. No,
0: right, but um, and I'm sorry. This is this is a similar question in some ways to my last question uh, about the emotional side of tradition. It's something that's not there explicitly in the book, but is there implicitly? And that's tradition in place. Um, So like I said, it occasionally surfaces. So for example, your comment about children potentially moving closer geographically to their parents, Um, but there's not an extended treatment of place or country. What do you hope for Maximilian's relationship to his country? And more, just more generally speaking, what is the relationship between patriotism and tradition?
1: That's fine. Most people ask, they ask the question that you just said, they would say, you know, you're a traditionalist, and yet the book has a kind of cosmopolitanism to it. Um, so we you know, swing back and forth between tribal Africa and, and uh, uh, Stalinist Russia, and then, you know, uh, twice in Weimar Germany, and then to Rolf <laughs> during uh, Nero's reign. Um, and. For the most part, what I've tried to suggest in the book is that traditionalism needed to be equal to localism. In fact, um, um, there's, obviously, I suggest that there's a kind of universal, um, there's a consonance between these different traditions that that they cohere together, even despite the fact that they span across um, many different spaces in time, many places in in space and time. Um, And Yeah, I mean it's a very difficult question because we live in a country that's very is almost genetically anti-traditional. It, mm. it is in its restlessness, um, um, in its um, uh, design, almost to sort of uh, where it prefers dislocation. It prefers um, uh, kind of dynamism and movement in a way. In ways, by the way, that is, there are some many things about that are attractive about that 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 serve important human goods. I, I don't deny it. Um, but um, it's a good question to ask that I, that I haven't resolved is how to, how to relate the world of tradition that I've tried to portray in the book to the American context, because um, you know, various strands of Christianity that um, took root here that are predominate here, um, they have their traditions, but they're at least outwardly in how they speak about tradition, they're anti-traditional. Mm. Um, certainly in sort of the, the Enlightenment uh, philosophy insofar as it informs uh, the political order is, is again, kind of anti-traditional opposed to traditional authority, very individualistic or individual autonomy maximizing. And so those two are in tension. Uh, I don't know how, how Maxwell, Maxwell have to resolve it as a political actor. Mm. Um, but I think what I've done is to suggest tensions between the two.
0: You're a convert in perhaps two ways for the purpose of this conversation to the Catholic faith and a convert, if I can put it this way, to the embrace of this tradition, right? Born in Iran, became an atheist, a Marxist, a rootless, small L liberal globetrotter, now a Catholic and an advocate of a return to tradition. Um, In what ways does this dual conversion experience of yours influence um, your approach to or appreciation of the importance of tradition and the wisdom of these of these limits. Yeah, um, so
1: on the, on the one hand, uh, my dual conversions are a kind of an only in America story, mm. right in the sense that uh, there is there is some sense of it in which um, uh, uh, it's only here with its sort of boundless uh, liberties that someone could weave through, weave a path through so many different ideologies before before settling on a kind of mature worldview um, and an ancient one. Uh, so um, on the other hand, um, it's not true that people didn't convert in kind of pre-modern times. It's not as if conversions are, or changing, changing your mind was impossible then. So sometimes people, read the book, I think we'll try to say, like, well, you yourself, um, your path to Catholicism and ultimately your path to, let's say, traditionalism, if you want to call it that, was made possible um, by our autonomy-maximizing society. So, like, aha, gotcha. Um, But what I would say is that, you know, insofar as I look back on my own journey with with its circuitous path, and it's meandering, and ultimately it's kind of intellectual digressions until I came to Catholicism. Um, yeah, there's a kind of um, uh, Felix culpa element in that, right? Like, oh, happy fault that I went through so many different, uh, and luckily I, I, I ended up um, in, in Peter's bark. Um, on the other hand, I would say that um, if we're thinking about how to organize a society, Um, I don't want a society in which, you know, I don't think we should want a society in which people have to go through this gauntlet of error, you know, until they, and many people don't get out of the gauntlet of error. They just sort of get um, overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, you know, my political project looking beyond the unbroken thread is, is in a way to um, try to reorder society so that it's a little bit easier to uh, uh, form people to be, set aside becoming Catholic, but just to live ordinary lives of natural virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, so the, my kind of biographical digressions and, and journey, um, I take a kind of personal joy in it. Yeah. I, I, I looking back on it and, and I sort of give, give thanks to God that, um, and I, there's, there are other people who have the same experience. I know where, mm-hmm. um, they look back on their lives and they're like, how? I mean, thank God that I ended up where I am, but like, what, what paths did I look look at this? And there's sort of something astonishing about that. On the other hand, as a, as a journalist and, a, and a, someone who tries to shape a uh, public debate, I'd, I'd rather not everyone be, be a, uh, you know, meandering yeah. <laughs> and maybe never finding their way. <laughs> meandering and, and, and sort of digressing and, and, and then just getting lost. Yeah. That's my, yeah. Well,
0: I'm certainly glad that, that you have found your way here. I know that all readers of this book will be. Saurabh, so, there are so much more that I would love to discuss with you, but uh, we are unfortunately out of time. Our guest today has been Saurabh Amari. We have been discussing his wonderful new book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Sorab, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. I enjoyed that so much. Thank you very much. There you have it, Madisonians. Sorab Amari on The Unbroken Thread. I put links in the show notes to both The Unbroken Thread and Sorab's spiritual memoir, From Fire by Water. They're both well worth your time. There's not much else to add today other than I hope you'll be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and recommend the podcast to your friends and family. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, and I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.